invite you to uh, open your Bible this morning to 1 Peter chapter 4. <clears throat> I apologize for my voice. I will do my best to be um, legible and audible, and uh, I suppose is the word. And uh, you, do, you do your best to listen, and we'll uh, trust that the Word of God is not bound, even by uh, human weakness. And uh, this is a great text this morning, First Peter chapter 4. We've started a, uh, just a very short little two-part series. I've been going through the book of First uh, Peter in the evenings, and these last, uh, last week, and now and again this week, just looking at these verses in uh, verses 7 through 11, because they're really applicable to us as a church body. And so let's pick it up again. Uh, we'll start reading in verse 1 of chapter 4, and we'll read through, the, uh, through verse 11, and we'll be looking this morning at uh, specifically verses 10 and 11. Let's begin at verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 4. <clears throat> Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves... With the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And then our text this morning. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God, we thank you that your word is like the rain that fell this morning. Um, it always accomplishes the task for which it was sent. It gives life and refreshment, energy. Uh, Lord, we pray that your word would do that in our lives today. Some of us maybe are just feeling very spiritually dry, spiritually weak. And we need, Lord, your word to refresh and revive us. And so we ask that you would do that. We thank you that you're so willing and uh, we look forward with expectation then to your ministry through the word. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that you've undoubtedly come across as you read the Bible is that the Bible, reading the Bible, studying the Bible, uh, can feel like a cross-cultural experience, and it ought to. Um, as we read Peter here this morning, we need to recognize that the way that Peter thinks, the way that Peter, the, the assumptions that Peter has, the values that Peter um, just proceeds on the basis of those are different than the world in which we live. If you travel to another country, uh, you realize that there are um, unspoken differences, that people just move and live and, and 
um, on the basis of different understandings and different, uh, different evaluations. And so the cultural differences aren't just in food or clothing, but in assumptions and presuppositions. Well, we have that here in Peter. Because the things that Peter assumes the, uh, in terms of what matters, what's significant, what ought to be pursued, what's true, uh, are different than what uh, the, the world that we live in, in today as 21st century uh, Americans. The, the most fundamental difference would be that 21st century Americans are convinced that they just assume this to be true. You don't have to explain it to them. It's, it's a granted, it's a given, that the goal of life is personal self Fulfillment and uh, self-human flourishing. What, so what makes you feel good, what makes you happy is, is the point. And if things don't tend to that end, something's wrong. Something has, has gone amiss. And you'll notice that in Peter's world, he assumes that there's a completely different reason for things. The goal is not um, primarily personal happiness. The goal is the glory of God. Now that doesn't that doesn't um, deny personal happiness. In fact, Peter believes that there's great joy, inexpressible joy, in being a Christian. But that the point of things is not um, how you feel today. The point of things is the glory of God. It's, so he has a very God-centered way of thinking. That to be a Christian is to be someone who has been called by God. And you exist uh, to proclaim the excellencies of God. And you follow a, a, a Savior, Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh. And because he suffered, you suffer. That, that suffering, not flourishing, suffering is part of the calling that we have as Christians. Well, here in, um, in verses 10 through 11, Peter takes this God-centered approach to talk about how do we do church life together. And, and, and here we see the, the conflicting cultures because uh, 21st century Americans... When they think of church, think about, they evaluate church on the basis of individual flourishing. How do, how do I feel about uh, this, this um, going to church? And, and um, what church is suitable for my, for my particular needs? You know, it's, <clears throat> we forget that for most of the people in the world, for the vast history, majority of the history of the church, you didn't get to pick a church. You... You were born in a town, and there was a church, and you were stuck with that church. If you were, if you were in Corinth, well, the Corinthian church is a mess, but guess what? It was your church, and you were, uh, you were required, you were forced to learn to love the, the people that you were with. It's like a family. Right? You don't get to pick your family, but you're required and called to love your family. You trust that God has put you into this particular family because it's for your good. And, and, uh, and Peter, that's how he thinks about church. It's the, it's the family of God. And uh, how it ministers your personal needs are, is, not the, is not the first thing on the agenda. The first thing is, how do we do family life together for the glory of God? Uh, his zeal is that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So how do we do that? And in doing that, we're going to find human flourishing. We're going to find blessings and sufferings and heartache, but growth and maturity, and Jesus Christ is going to be glorified. That has to be the goal for the church. Well, how then do we proceed to do that? This morning, we're going to look at the principle and then the practice and the purpose. 
The principle, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. When the apostles thought about the church, they didn't think institution. They thought an organization um, that is knit together, all these individuals knit together. So it's, it's a house or it's a flock or it's a family or it's a body. And you got all these different parts in every one of those illustrations um, that, that are knit together, that fit together, that belong together, and then are required to work together and to serve one another as a, as a body. So Peter here is just, he's just coming out of this common uh, apostolic understanding of what the church is as a body, and he says everyone has received a gift. And the, the point then where he goes from there is not so identify your gift and make sure that you uh, are fulfilled in exercising your gift. That's how 21st century Americans think. Um, excuse me, <clears throat> I have a gift. Now you need to make room for me um, so that I can uh, have, the, uh, have the joy of, of expressing myself and, and expressing my gift. Well, that's not how Peter talks. Peter just says you, ha- you have a gift, but... The point is, God has a purpose for you in the body. God has a purpose for you. You're not here by accident. You didn't just end up in the church. God has called you and placed you in the church, and God has given you a a, a gift of some sort in the body to be used for the good of other people. And I may say, well, but I don't know what my gift is. What is a spiritual gift? Well, generally, you find in the Bible, the spiritual gifts are uh, natural abilities that, that you were born with, sanctified by God, and, and used specifically then to bless the body of Christ. So if you look in Acts chapter 9, you have this lady named Dorcas. Um, and she's a wonderful blessing to the church body. When she dies, there is tremendous grief. And, and, and so that they call and ask Peter to come, and, and he raises her from the dead. Well, what did this woman do? That she was such a significant part of the body. She was such a blessing to so many. Do you, know, do you remember what she did? She sewed. She, she sewed tunics and, and items of clothing and, and then gave them to people. And blessed people like crazy. The grace of God being manifested and, and uh, given to others, showered on others through this gift that she had. That's, I think, what Peter's talking about. His calling here is just, you've you've received, you you have a purpose in the body, so use your sanctified gifts, your sanctified natural abilities, use them, that's that's exactly what he says, use them to bless others. Paul says the same in Romans 12, 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And there's all sorts of different gifts, all sorts of different abilities, but they all have the same objective. To serve, to bless, to be used in order that God's grace can be manifested. So use it as, uh, because we are stewards of God's very grace. We're not just being nice people. I think that's a common assumption. We, uh, we do things maybe in the body of Christ because we sense that there's an obligation. And, and maybe we enjoy doing it. That's wonderful. But we're not just being nice people when we're, when we're uh, using our gifts to serve one another uh, Peter says that we are ministering God's grace. That's what, that's what the text says. We are stewards of God's varied grace. And so a kind word to a friend, a prayer that is offered up 
for someone in need. A meal from uh, some folks when, when you're sick. A helping hand from a, from a teenager. A gift from the deacons. An encouraging visit from an elder. Uh, all the teaching Sunday school. All the, the vast different ways that people bless each other, Peter says, that is God's grace being manifested. It's God's grace flowing through God's people to bless the body and build up the body. It's interesting when um, I've heard people say this, and, and I don't blame them for saying it, uh, because I feel the same way. But people say, I want to be a part of a church where God is really at work. And I say amen to that. I don't want to be part of the church where uh, everything that's happening could be explained by simple um, human initiative and endeavor. I want, to be, I want to be in a church where God is really at work. The, the problem is that the assumption then is, is often that, uh, that there are um, extraordinary things happening all the time. Well, as you look at the apostles again, you look at Peter, uh, when God is really at work, you see servants, you see people engaged, you see people doing normal, wonderful, grace-filled acts of love. That's, what, that's God himself at work. And it's a beautiful thing in the eyes of God. It builds up his body. One of the things that blesses me is, is uh, God is at work here at Harvest Church. Um, you, maybe you've seen our little servants directory. You can pick them up uh, in the foyer or the office. Uh, but over 53% of Harvest members are, are in the servants directory as participating in some ministry. And there are many, many more doing, doing um, ministry of some sort, ministering the grace of God that are not in the directory. I love that about uh, the church here. Uh, that's God, friends. That's God himself at work. Now, Paul, Peter mentions two categories of gifts. He doesn't go list them all. There's, there's way too many. But he, there's two categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts. Whoever speaks, he says, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God provides. Notice again how God-centered his thinking is. If you're going to be speaking, speak the oracles of God. Don't, people do not need to be hearing about uh, what you did last summer for vacation. Or they don't need to hear you just pontificate on some um, cultural issue of the moment. What, what the call is, is to speak the oracles of God. God-centered speaking. And, and Peter seems to be thinking here of the act of preaching. Preaching was um, throughout the New Testament. It's, it's highly... Um, ex, uh, exalted as, as one of the gifts that God gives for the, for the body. So the apostles are doing this in Acts 6. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. It's what Paul did on his missionary journeys. Acts 15. Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of God. It's what Paul commands Timothy to do in 2 Timothy 2. Uh, for, uh, preach the word. Preach the word. There's a fascinating little book I read um, my last study break by Christopher Ashe called The Priority of Preaching. Very, just a, a fascinating little book. He's a British guy. He makes the point very early on <clears throat> that throughout the history of the church, even in Old Testament Israel, preaching has always been one of the primary means of grace. 
And he says that in the, in the, the church, it's always been true, that God's word and his written word is the authority of the church. This is our rule for faith and practice. And that's true back, way back when God comes and makes covenant with the Old Testament Israel. What does he do? He writes on a tablet his word. That's the covenant document. But Ash points out that the way that that authority, that written word, the authority of that written word, the way that it functions, the way that it's exercised in the body is through preachers. So Moses preached. You find that throughout his ministry. And the prophets preached. And so Ash says the authority of God was exercised not by the written word, but by the written word preached. This is why the test of obedience to God was whether or not they listened to the prophet. So God did not simply give Israel a book. He gave them preachers of the book so that face to face they could be taught, challenged, rebuked, and exhorted to repentance and faith. I think that's exactly right. That God gives preachers not because... um, not because the word is insufficient, but because the word needs to be applied. It needs to be explained and pressed and, 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 and offered and encouraged on, on the people of God. It needs to be applied to the body, to the congregation, in all the cultural context that the church finds itself in. Eric Alexander's written a, a nice little book that I think we have some copies of these. Uh, what is biblical preaching? Again, I highly would recommend it. It's, it's very simple to read, but it makes the point that the rise and falls of the church's history are a reflection of the presence or absence of, the, of faithfulness and power in the pulpit. The rise and the fall of the, of the church throughout its history can be attributed to what's happening in the preaching. Is the one who's speaking, speaking oracles of God, or is he doing something else? And if you're speaking the oracles of God, that's going to affect content, it's going to, and it's going to affect urgency. It's going to affect content in the sense that uh, men will be preaching what we call expository preaching. It'll be taking the text and, ex- and expounding on the text. And not using the text as a springboard into some other topic. And not using the text as an allegory um, to refer to something other than the text. I, again, I remember a, a sermon I heard um, many years ago now, but I can't forget it where the minister <coughs> talked about, uh, he read the text of Jesus being crucified, the soldiers taking him out and crucifying him, and then he um, put the Bible aside and said, uh, this, is, uh, this was a tradition for the, uh, this, the Roman guard, that uh, this was their job, it's what they did, they, have to, they, they, they were the, the guard that were assigned to crucify people. So that was their tradition. <coughs> and then made this magnificent leap, to saying a, a tradition is what killed Jesus. Tradition is killing the church. We need to get rid of all the traditions. And um, I went to him afterward, and I said, do you really think that that's what Luke intended when he wrote uh, the soldiers led him out to crucify him? Do you think that, the, that Luke intended to say that, what, that the point here is that we need to get rid of all tradition in the church? And his answer was, I have no idea whatsoever what Luke intended to say. I don't think it's knowable or relevant what Luke intended to say. Um, This is a a living book 
And uh, we're free to interpret it sort of however it strikes us as wise. Well, okay. Whatever you're doing there, you're not preaching. You're not, a spe- you're not as one who speaks oracles of God. You're going to kill the church. John Stott, in his book, I Believe in Preaching, he says, It is my contention that all true Christian preaching is expository preaching. The expositor opens what appears to be closed, unravels what seems knotted, unfolds what is tightly packed. In expository preaching, the biblical text is neither a conventional introduction to a sermon on a largely different theme, nor a convenient peg on which to hang a rag bag of miscellaneous thoughts, but a master which dictates and controls what is said. Alexander, again, says in his little booklet, what this implies for us preachers is that the food we serve to people, the bread we break to them, is holy scripture. There is no other bread, and that is so true. Can you imagine how hard it would be to be a preacher if you had to come up with something novel every week? Some, something profound, something whimsical that uh, would attract people? Oh, I mean, who could do that? Maybe some some particularly bright, right, creative guys, but even they're going to wear out. And, 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 and the, the truth of it is that has no, there's no power in that. There's, no, there's just no power in it. You can't feed God's sheep with something other than the food that God intended. Now, I just want to read, this is a, Alexander quotes from a telephone conversation he had with a, a student who called him from another city. And this student said, I have just traveled from the opposite side of this city back to my lodgings. I've been around almost every church which I've been told is evangelical in this city. I've heard some marvelous music. I've listened to scintillating dialogues. I have seen drama and dancing. I've been at all manner of different forms of worship. Many kindnesses have been extended to me. But I am here in my lodgings on this Sunday evening asking myself, will nobody in this great city feed my soul? And unfortunately, that's the cry too often in the churches today. Well, no one feed my soul. See, when, when, when preachers lose their confidence that the word of God is sufficient to the task for which it was sent, they'll be on to do other things. And so when Peter says, as whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God, he's not asking ministers to pretend that they're speaking the oracles of God. He's telling them that this is precisely the nature of their calling. This is... This is the point, right? Preachers are to expound the text and to feed God's people with the truth from the text. And that will involve then the urgency as well. You see, if, if these things are divine things, if this is what God wants communicated to his church, then there, there has to be an, some urgency to that. This is not, these are not the, 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 the sayings of a wise man somewhere. This is the living God, maker of heaven and earth, who desires to communicate with his people, who leads his people and feeds his people through the word. So when I, when I hear preachers, I, I just want to see, does he think that what he's doing has any connection to the reality of a living God? Does he, does he understand that what he's supposed to be doing is to expound God's word? You know what an amazing thing it is? To have God's word preached to you. One of God's greatest judgments in Israel is when the prophets just ceased. There were no more prophets. God was done talking. He was done speaking. That's judgment. 
And so Peter is commanding us as a church to be the church. If you're going to speak, speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. It's, it's about God. And then God enabled serving as whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. There again, you say, the preacher is just a channel. None of the glory goes to the preacher. It's God's truth. It's God's glory. It's God's redemption. It's all about him. And the same when it comes to serving. Uh, the servants of God are, are, are serving in the strength that God supplies. They love with the love that God gives. They bless others out of the blessing they receive from him. They are serving and helping and counseling and caring because all that has been poured out on them in Jesus. They're doing everything they do in the strength that comes from him. And so Paul says in Galatians 2.20, uh, it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives within me. That's the secret of Christian service. That we're, we're, we're not just striving to, to do certain things that we, we don't really want to do. But, but, but you'll find as a, as a true Christian servant that you're doing things in some sense because you can't help it. If you've ever been thanked by someone, right? You've, you've done some kindness and they, and they thank you. Don't you feel a little bit awkward because you sense that in, in some way it's not really you. Or how could you not do what you just did? Or it's such a small thing in, in light of all that God has done for you in Jesus Christ. So, so a, a, a Christian servant has a sense that Jesus is at work in me and through me. And, and I get the privilege then of blessing other people simply because of Jesus. It's, it's about him. He gets, the, he gets the glory, and that's the whole point. The purpose, 11b, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And you see, friends, if, if we're going to be excited about this kind of ministry... Uh, we're, we're going to have to be excited about the glory of Jesus. How do you get motivated to be glad in hospitality? Right? He says, show hospitality without grumbling. The hospitality is the easy part. The grumbling is the hard part. To do it cheerfully. So how are you going to be motivated to glad hospitality? How will you be motivated to sincere, earnest, stretching, heartbreaking love and, and willing service if the True goal of your life is yourself and your comfort and your ease and your flourishing. Because if, if you're going to do ministry in the church, it's going to cost things. But why would you do that? So why would you give up personal time and convenience and comfort to do things in the service of other people? Things that don't seem to help you, but rather seem to drain you and exhaust you? Why would you give sacrificially and generously to the cause of Christ? And why would you bear with people who truly wear you out and move towards people who have hurt you deeply and love people who have strong strains of unloveliness about them? Why would you do that? Well, you, you do it because... It's not about you. you. You do it because you sense that this is, there's something else going on here. That the, the point of 
being a Christian isn't me. It's him. So, so Peter says, the glory belongs. Glory and dominion belong to Jesus, belong to God. Well, we've got to be convinced of that. Why, why is that true? Well, it's first true simply because of who he is. He's God. He's, he's God. We, we, we have, don't have many categories of, of things that, that deserve or re- require honor in our culture. We're not an honor culture. But God requires in his being to be in the presence of God is to bow down. You can't help it. Dominion and glory belong to him. The angels in heaven worship ceaselessly day and night, not because there was a, a rule handed out. Everyone needs to worship all the time. The, the being of God, you see, is, is the rule. Angels cannot help themselves. You, you cannot be in his presence without worshiping. It belongs to him. And Christians, you see, it's, it dub, it's doubly true. Because that God, that God, gave his life for you and for me. That God bore all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame. That God has rescued us from the judgment that we absolutely deserve. That God has taken us uh, from being objects of divine wrath who were truly destined for an eternity without God. And, and at the cost of the life of Jesus Christ, his son, God has brought us into the kingdom of his marvelous light. And we are now heirs of heaven with Christ, the bride of Christ, the, the children of God. And so glory and dominion belong to Jesus. If you're a Christian, you sense that it's true. It belongs to him. See, friends, it, the, more we, the more we grasp that fact, that's going to that's alter our life. It's going to change the way we think about things and go about things. It's going to overcome our fear of evangelizing. If, if you're just convinced of the marrow of your bones that glory belongs to Jesus, belongs to God, then as you're, as you're meeting with people, you won't be thinking about how does this impact my comfort and my security. You're going to be thinking about how can I help this guy, this lady, how can I help her see the glory of God? The, the great tragedy of their life is they're not giving God the glory he deserves. How, how do I help them? Come to see the love and the grace and the truth and the, the, the awesome holiness of God so that they worship. It, it, it changes all the dynamics. It's going to change our reluctance to give. We're reluctant to give because we sense that this might impinge upon my personal happiness. Well, if you're, if you have a, if you're radically motivated by a sense that God deserves his glory, he deserves his worship and his praise, then, then we're motivated. It's going to break our addiction to our personal comfort and security. If we get fixed in our heart and mind that it's really truly about him. And, and this seems counterintuitive. You would think that what we need as people who have real needs. Some of you are here this morning with, with petty things like a cold. Some of you are here with heartbreaking hardships. And confusing uh, soul-testing situations. You, you just you cannot figure things out. 
Some of you uh, have experienced awful things, hard things, and you're you're right here this morning. And it would seem, you see, that the the, the most helpful thing is for the preacher to specifically address your specific concern, your specific need, and show you how to get past it, how to get through it, how to live your best life now. That would seem to be the most helpful. But it's not. Because you, you can have all that. And if you don't have a sense of the glory of God, and if, and if your heart hasn't been caught up into the, the glory of God, into the magnificence of his redemption, and all that he has purposed for you, and the incredible love that he has for you in Jesus Christ, if you're not caught up into the glory of God, you're just, you're just dead. And I am too. No matter how your needs, right, temporal needs might be provided for you, you're dead. And so you see, the gospel meets us where we are and blesses us where we are by calling us up into something so much bigger, so much greater than where we are, into the glory of God himself. And and that's going to change how we think about doing church. That's going to affect how we think about living the Christian life. Let me wrap this up with a, just a, one specific illustration of, of how this matters, why this would make a difference. I read an article just a couple weeks ago by Gloria Furman, and the title is 10 Ways Ecclesiology Encourages Me. Ecclesiology is doctrine of the church, which is what we've been talking about this morning. And I'm not going to read the whole article, but I'd like to, I thought it was very um, applicable and just helpful as one illustration. She's a young mother. She says, as a wife of a pastor, mother of three little kids, I know how challenging it can be to get everybody out of the door to church. Now, maybe that's your story this morning. I can also empathize with those who struggle with being present once you're there. How do you, you, so we've got young mothers here, young families, young children, and we don't ship them out, right? (laughs) So that has its own challenges. How do you stay present in that, in that context? She says, I recall one morning at church where I spent the entire time either caring for my colicky, colicky baby in the bathroom or collecting pieces of borrowed clothes for another child who had multiple accidents involving bodily fluids in church. It's tempting to dive into feelings of futility on those occasions. Was this morning for naught? What a waste! Personally, she says, I tend to blame my attitude on my circumstances, but the real battle wages in my heart as I fight to cherish corporate worship and engage heart and soul in church activities. God's word instructs us, let us uh, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So she says, here are... Uh, just 10 of the things I remind myself of when I'm tempted to downplay the importance of corporate worship and ecclesiology in my life. And I'll just the first three. One, very important. God is glorified in my public profession of his supreme worth. I can't think of a single joy that outjoys this privilege when I consider the grace of God that allows commands, instructs, invites, and enables me to participate in worshiping him 
and giving him the glory he deserves. That is a, that's a great sentence. I can't think of a single joy that outjoys that privilege. You see, if, if, if we get caught having to try to convince people that church is good for you, well, you, you've lost the battle in that sense. Because you're, you're approaching the whole thing as, a, as a, someone trying to sell somebody on something. And, and the customer, right, is going to weigh, well, okay, it's, I hear what you're saying, but I don't, I don't experience it as good for me. I, I mean, maybe once in a while. But only to this level, only to this point. I mean, I, I, enjoy, going, I enjoy doing lots of things. But when you are convinced that God is glorified by you being in worship, and when, when your passion is to glorify God, simply and knowing that your presence in worship says something about the value of God that your absence from worship does not say, see, when it's about Him, it changes the discussion. That's what she gets. And, and you realize this is not a rule. <laughs> this, is, this is just thinking like a Christian. And I need to hear it. Second, being part of the church is who I am. As all the saints are united to one another under Jesus our head. The Bible describes me as a brick in a building, a member of a family, a sheep in a flock, a priest in a priesthood. Remembering who I am saved to be in the context of the body of Christ helps deal with my prideful independence. I need to be part of the body. Isolating myself from the body dishonors God and is to my detriment. Um, and once again, you see, your, our presence is important. I, I so often encourage young families who are dealing with young kids, and, I, I, and that's hard, but there's a, there's a witness in that to the whole body. And to a watching world, just your presence. She find, she, uh, number three is this, I'll wrap up. The Holy Spirit's indwelling means that my contribution to fellowship has tremendous value for others. The Spirit of God personally leads me to love my brothers and sisters through the scriptural one another's. Love each other, forgive each other, bear with each other, encourage each other. The body needs me too. Isolating myself from the body is to the detriment of others. And so there's just one practical example. That's exactly what Peter's talking about. We belong together. We have a calling together to honor God, to give him the glory, to give him the worship that is his due. And by God's grace, let's carry on. Let's continue on. Let's go deeper. Let's beg God. That he does not allow us just to be a church that does church, but that God, by his Holy Spirit, is constantly driving us to be a church where the Holy Spirit is, is changing and transforming us, and that God in Jesus Christ is being glorified. That the world notices that something is going on there. Something that's unnatural. Something that cannot be attributed just to nice people. Jesus Christ is being praised. May that be our heart's desire. Let's pray. Oh, God in heaven, I thank you that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. He's our King. He's our shepherd. He's our friend. He's our, the bridegroom. And Jesus, we, we've just been in a busy week. And our hearts are sore because of our spiritual sloth or because of our sin. Because... 
things seem to be falling apart, and I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you know. I thank you that you give us the church as a body, as a family, so that we can encourage each other, that we can walk together, we can learn how to love. And I thank you that the point of the whole thing is that Jesus Christ is glorified. Oh, God, forgive us when we, for, we lose sight of that goal. And we settle for what we think we can do or we settle for what we're comfortable with. We settle for less than the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's a sin. And so, God, we pray that you would, you would break our hard hearts we pray, Lord, that you would reorient our values and our passions so that in everything this would be the goal, that God be glorified in our homes and our marriages. Lord, I just pray that you would break through some difficult marriages as, as people realize this is not about my happiness. This is not about my being fulfilled. This is, this is about the glory of God. And that we get on our knees and beg your intervention. I pray, Lord, for, for children who are growing up and maybe rebelling. That they would realize this, is, this life is not about getting your way and having what you want or think that you need. It's about God. So, Lord, we, we ask for your help. Make us glad, eager servants of Jesus Christ. And that we serve each other and minister the grace of God in all of its various forms to each other. So that Jesus Christ is magnified and, and the, the excellencies of God are proclaimed by what we say and what we do. We give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond singing together, make me a servant. Let's, uh, that's our prayer. Let's stand to sing.